And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, May 12th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the HHS Inspector General says it needs more money to combat medical fraud. Plus, this author says public unions are not only wrong, they're unconstitutional. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Office of Personnel Management outlines its data goals for the next few years and focuses on developing a federal workforce that's good at data and analytics. OPM officials themselves hope to create an enterprise analytics platform to promote information sharing, no silos. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with OPM's Chief Data Officer and Deputy Director for Human Capital Data Management, Ted Kalk. And we're, as an agency, uniquely positioned to rebuild and empower and support the federal workforce, and data and evidence are really critical to that work. We really start with the premise that OPM has data on the largest workforce in the country with 2.1 million current federal employees. Uh, we have data on recruitment, hiring, throughout the life cycle, all the way through benefits and retirement. And so through our, our data strategy, we want to be able to leverage that data to improve decision-making, to improve the federal employee experience, and really to ensure overall that the federal government has the data skills it needs to drive data-driven change. So through our engagements with chief human capital officers, agencies, chief diversity officers, and OPM programs, we've developed four goals, which are really centered on developing a, a strong data-driven culture and a highly skilled data analytics workforce across the government at OPM, working to deliver high-quality human capital data products that inform and support decision-making, modernizing our underlying technology and using data standards to improve data collections and to improve the integration of the data and advanced analytics, and also, of course, our last goal is to develop and implement strong data governance to include privacy, security, management. All right. That's a lot to dive into here. I think what's interesting, of course, about OPM is there's a lot of in-house work that OPM needs to do. So let's spend a little bit of time there in terms of building of data skills across the federal workforce. Uh, what are the kind of data skills the federal workforce will need to know in the future? And how is OPM helping to build those skills government-wide? We really try to think about these uh, needs holistically and, and align our data strategy with the federal data strategy. So we've started looking both at executives as well as down to early career talent to really think about what data skills the federal government needs. And so our first objective is really focused on building a, a data-fluent senior executive service, ensuring that executives and, and those who are coming up to the leadership pipeline have data fluency as one of the core competencies in the executive core qualification framework to ensure that they can ask the right questions and to ensure that they're able to lead data-driven change at their agencies. And so that's a big part of our focus. Another focus is really ensuring that we have the broader data skills, uh, that we're able to recruit talent, uh, that we're able to have the right competency models for skills like data management, artificial intelligence. And we've been engaged in a number of recruitment efforts that I think speak to the competitive hiring power of the federal government. Uh, we have an unparalleled mission. And so through some of the activities we've been engaged in over the past couple of years, like our government-wide hiring action, we've been able to make some inroads to ensuring we have the right talent like data science talent. So for example, about a year and a half ago, we launched the first government-wide data science hiring action, which enabled agencies across government to hire some really talented candidates and brought in about 50 new data scientists into government. The State Department was one example of an agency that took advantage of that government-wide hiring action. And through the work of some of their data scientists, I think you can see the excitement that can be built around recruiting talent into the federal government. So just last week, we launched another data analyst hiring action, and we're looking forward to how that plays out. And we'll also be recruiting through another data scientist hiring action later in the year. The Chief Data Officer Council is really focused on ensuring that we also build within that community our data skills and workforce development working group, a number of resources that agencies can use, including data skills playbook, position description repositories. And this year, we're also building a data culture playbook to help agencies understand how they can drive data culture within their agencies. All right. A lot to unpack there. Let's start with the latest data scientist hiring action. Does it bear a lot of similarity to the last government-wide data scientist hiring action that we saw previously? In what ways is it different? In what ways is it similar? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of distinctions. One is the last hiring action that went out was before the 1560 data scientist series that OPM developed was in place. And so it was a 343 series uh, hiring action. So that's why this year's 343 hiring action is a data analyst 
hiring action, which is really focused on things like data visualization and data analysis. And we'll be actually going out with our first 1560 hiring action later this year, which is focused on you know more hardcore data science and, and advanced uh, analytics. To change gears here a little bit, one of the stated goals of this data strategy is to really improve the customer experience around data access from what data products OPM offers. And so you know, we saw a couple things come out from that effort recently, OPM's data portal and uh, a handful of projects there, one of them being the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey dashboard. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. What's the overall goal of improving that data experience and what are the future of these products that we're looking at here? This really stems back to a problem that we've been looking at at the Chief Data Officer Council for some time, which is how do you solve the challenge of providing decision support across government where you have a, an emergent need or you have a, a longstanding function where lots of agencies are trying to answer very similar questions. And I think human capital data is, is definitely one of those arenas. So during the pandemic, we, we worked to try to share decision support on workforce safety and uh, learned a lot about some of the opportunities and challenges and, and went on to build some of the first government-wide dashboards on diversity and demographics and uh, shared those across multiple agencies, but also provided some recommendations on things that uh, an agency like OPM should consider. So we've certainly taken those recommendations to heart. And as we're thinking about how to leverage all the data that we collect from agencies on, again, recruitment and hiring and demographics and employee engagement, how do we provide a really good experience for leaders across government who need access to that data? It's certainly a, a significant challenge and a lot of opportunities for improvement where chief human capital officers across government are seeking real-time insights to data from multiple component agencies at an enterprise level. And so what we're building through our data portal are a number of products, both public-facing and role-based, that will enable agencies to deliver on that vision. We're working in an agile way with agencies to understand what questions they'd like to see answered. And then we're building products that will be delivered through you know, a seamless customer experience. We've released some initial data products on things like the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and on a cyber workforce, which are available at opm.gov forward slash data for anyone who's interested. But we're also building in role-based authenticated dashboards that enable agencies to dive deeper into their data. And so we're excited about some of the products we'll release later this year focused on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and dashboards that are helping agencies to answer questions on key questions like attrition. Again, these are questions that many agencies are trying to answer in very similar ways. We also want to make sure the data is available to them to be able to answer questions that uh, may be very mission-specific, for example, so they can explore the data. Similarly, we have data on federal employees across OPM, and the federal employee experience with accessing that data can be dramatically improved. And so we're looking at how to accomplish that at the same time over the next couple of years. Something I really take away from what you just said is that real-time nature of things. For an example here, that FEVs dashboard, you know, we would see, of course, annual releases of that FEVs data it would be this big, massive endeavor. What this dashboard ultimately seems to offer up is a closer snapshot to when the data is collected. Could you speak to that a little bit, that driving of real-time data insights and ultimately data-driven decision-making? Well, certainly we'll be leveraging, you know, the current data collection methods that are in place in terms of how often we conduct a survey, which uh, is currently annually. But as we're bringing more real-time insights to things like hiring and attrition, you know, looking at how those different data sets intersect and where we may be able to identify key insights for agencies, I think that may drive the conversation about what the needs are over the next several years. As we're also working with agencies to identify key questions, we're, of course, identifying key gaps. And so, a streamlined or a standard process for doing exit surveys, for example, has emerged as one of the key gaps that we may want to explore. So that's certainly also informing our processes. How do we use the data we already have? And then how do we look to the future about what we might need to provide better insights? And in that case, looking at periodicity for how often we collect data may be something to look at as well. Ted Kalk, Chief Data Officer and Deputy Director for Human Capital Data Management at the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this author says public unions are not only wrong, they're unconstitutional. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Public employee unions are a fact of life at the federal and most state levels of government and in many large cities. 
President John Kennedy famously authorized them at the federal level back in the early 1960s. My next guest argues that public unions not only promote inefficiency, they're also unconstitutional. Philip Howard is an attorney and founder and chairman of Common Good. He joins me now. Mr. Howard, good to have you on. Nice to be with you. And you have a new book out called Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. And you seem to be making two arguments. One, that they don't do the public very good or operational efficiency and accountability of the government very good. And at the same time, they're not even constitutional. Let's start with the first argument that they impede public efficiency and so forth. Right. So what's happened over the last 50 years since collective bargaining was authorized is that basic management tools have virtually disappeared. There's near zero accountability at all levels of government in this country. And, not, you know, over 99 percent of federal employees get a fully successful rating. Why is that? Because if you say one negative thing and put it in the file for the supervisor, you've got a good chance of having to go through a grievance proceeding and nobody has the time to do that. So there's near zero accountability and governments become substantially unmanageable. Basic decisions about who's best doing what job can't be made. There are strict rules on seniority and other kinds of restrictions on how management works. And so the result is the government is the public is getting, well, lots of bad things. The public gets a fraction of what it pays for. Good public employees find themselves sometimes in organizations which are dispirited. Paul Volcker wrote about this because it's unmanageable and there's no mutual trust and everybody's pulling their share and that sort of thing. And one irony that you point out pretty early in the book is that some of the establishment of public unions, this is mainly in the municipal level, was precisely to get rid of the patronage type of system, which was never efficient or fair, in favor of a professional civil service. You cite Mayor Wagner of New York, although Tammany Hall was kind of dead 30 years before that. Yeah, you know, the the history of this is ironic. You know, we wanted to get rid of patronage, which we started doing back in the late 19th century in the progressive era. That was a good thing. But it gave rise to a natural organizing group of semi-permanent public employees who then kind of naturally wanted sort of more power. And over the years, the leaders of these public employee associations wanted to get similar powers as trade unions. And FDR resisted it and LaGuardia resisted it. But finally, during the rights revolution of the 60s, they went along and gave them these powers. And they didn't really understand that there's a substantial difference between private bargaining and trade union bargaining both in the dynamics of the negotiation and also in what you can bargain for. And so the result is that controls that would never be seen in a private union contract, you can never get rid of accountability in a car factory because the assembly line wouldn't work, you know, and the other workers wouldn't do it. But that's just like it's a state of nature in the public sector. And what about the differences between federal and all other public unions because federal cannot bargain for pay and benefits. How has that changed the dynamic between the two basic categories? Well, I think it does change the dynamic somewhat. I mean, the state and local unions have negotiated for really unaffordable long-term pensions and free health care benefits and such. That is not such a problem in the federal sectors. So I would say it's less of a problem in the federal government But one of the big supporters for overhauling civil service is the Senior Executives Association because they feel that they don't have adequate, you know, managerial control. And so, you know, what I'm calling for in the federal government, I'm talking to some presidential candidates about this, it's really a remaking of the civil service system back to what it was originally intended to be, which is a merit system with speed bumps to protect against arbitrary dismissal or somebody like Donald Trump coming in and you know, wielding an axe, you know, we don't want that, but not a trial-like hearing every time somebody puts a negative comment in an employee file. We're speaking with attorney Philip Howard. He's author of Not Accountable, just out from Rodin Books. And about the question of constitutionality, your thesis is that because they are so entrenched, federal unions cannot be dislodged except by a constitutional challenge. I mean, that's the practical effect, but the, you know, no one had really ever analyzed public employee unions through the lens of constitutional governance. So democracy is nothing but a process of accountability. You elect someone, particularly you elect an executive like a president, a mayor, a governor, 
And their job is to manage the operating machinery of government. And if they do a bad job, the voters elect someone else or elect a new party. And what's happened is that public union agreements have effectively taken away their managerial powers. So you elect people who are figureheads. And so democracy can't work. And so I argue in the book that these collective bargaining agreements and controls should be unconstitutional because democracy can only work when the mayor actually has the authority to reorganize a failing school, for example. And how does that come about? In other words, you need a case to render something unconstitutional. Yeah. So we're working with several public interest law firms in a number of states about organizing challenges under what's called the Guarantee Clause of the Constitution, which basically says the U.S. Constitution guarantees a Republican form of government, which means that the people who get elected have to retain their authority to run government. They can't give it to any private group. And there's a lot of stuff by Madison. But in the federal government, it could actually be overhauled, I believe, by executive order by the president, who would simply say, I believe that parts of the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 that require collective bargaining and require all these detailed provisions for any discipline or termination are unconstitutional under Article 2, which gives me executive power, and there's a lot of authority in the Supreme Court on that. And therefore, by executive order, I'm creating a new civil service system that makes it easier to fire, much more easy to get rid of non-performing employees, and I'll have speed bumps to make sure that people are not treated arbitrarily or for partisan reasons. But this is going to be what I'm proposing. And then, of course, his executive order would be challenged by the the unions, among other things. And so it would go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would decide. I mean, in some ways, isn't that what the Trump administration tried to do? You know, they did this Schedule F. I believe they had the authority to do Schedule F, which basically created at-will employment for 3,000 or so top federal officials. But I didn't like it because I thought it should have speed bumps to guard against partisan or arbitrary dismissals. So I thought there needed to be some independent body that is there to make sure that people weren't treated unfairly. Because I think ultimately what you want are organizations that are trustworthy. You want people who work in the government to feel that they'll be treated fairly. Then they'll work hard and stuff. And so just as having no accountability removes trust, so too having arbitrary dismissals removes trust. You you need something in the middle. Right. It's always incumbent on management to be well qualified and operate in a correct way. Yeah, that's right. So everybody should be accountable. And again, there should be protection so that people don't fear that they'll show up one day and all of a sudden they'll be out on the streets. So in my world, this new executive order with a new civil service system would include many of the reforms that people like the Partnership for Public Service have been advocating, but it would do it by executive order. All right. And what's the reaction to the book so far? I mean, I've written broadly about, not about unions, but about the functioning of government and, you know, over-bureaucratization and all that kind of stuff. My my book, The Death of Common Sense, was a big bestseller, and I worked with Clinton and Gore back in the 90s. But I've had more reviews on this book than any book I've ever written. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But the liberal media hasn't criticized it. It's just ignored it. So, so the New York Times has basically said nothing. And I'm just now starting to get commentary, um, long article in Government Executive Magazine by Don Kettle just came out, you know, talking about how this is likely to be one of the battle lines in the 2024 election, which is, you know, how do we manage government? So I think it is an issue whose time has come. Attorney Philip Howard is author of Not Accountable. It is just out from Rodin Books. Thanks so much for joining me. Nice to be with you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, here's a civil service reform bill you're going to want to pay attention to. But first, the HHS Inspector General says it needs more money to combat medical fraud. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. More government spending, unfortunately, means more fraud. Our next guest says it means more money is needed to take on fraud. 
A case in point, the Health and Human Services Department has more programs than ever. Its inspector general called for a big boost in its 2024 congressional budget justification. For what's behind the ask, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with HHS Principal Deputy Inspector General Julie Hodgkins. So just by way of background, in fiscal 22, HHS had the largest spending of all federal agencies. That's including the Department of Defense at $2.5 trillion. You know, with that, HHS operates over 100 separate programs. So by comparison, in the same fiscal year, that is 22, OIG spent $455 million to oversee those programs. Now, those are pretty big numbers. So uh, to translate that into some dollars that we can all appreciate, OIG has two cents for every $100 of HHS spending to oversee programs and to prevent, detect, and deter fraud, waste, and abuse in those programs. Putting it another way, HHS has 0.021% of what is spent by HHS for oversight. I also kind of want to put this in context for you amongst the IG community. So by comparison to our OIG colleagues, HHS OIG is amongst the lowest funded by percentage of the, you know, looking at the overall agency expenditure to the IG budget. But with this small amount of money, we are quite mighty in what we do. So OIG recoveries and expected recoveries, comparing those to the money that we are given every year, for every dollar that we get, we return $11 to the federal government. So I guess what I want to leave you with at the beginning here is we are a good investment to to protect federal programs. So in the president's fiscal 24 budget, HHS is seeking a total increase of $82.3 million dollars. $52.5 million of that is for Medicaid and Medicare oversight, and $29.8 million of that is for our oversight of HHS public health and human services programs, with the $52.5 million for Medicare and Medicaid oversight. That increase is largely through a request for a legislative change that would increase the amounts available to DOJ to HHS and to HHS OIG from the healthcare fraud and abuse control account. So over 10 years, the proposal would actually increase by 20% the amounts available to each or to all of these enforcement partners for fraud fighting. So if you are able to get those funds, what is the strategy for where would that money go necessarily? Would it just be to manpower or just in other areas that cost money to investigate? Sure. So I, it's going to be in a variety of areas, Eric. So certainly we need more agents, investigators to be able to go and look at those referrals that we are getting. But in addition to that, we also, of course, need the support that goes around that, right? We make use of data to identify trends and outliers that point us to potential fraud and certainly to waste and abuse in programs. And so to say that, uh, you know, it's all going to manpower is not exactly right, right? We need those data tools, that infrastructure to be able to use the data uh, that we get from Medicare and from Medicaid to be able to identify, you know, the trends and the places that we should go spend our, you know, spend our money on investigations. Gotcha. And so you mentioned all the amount of criminal referrals you get. And I don't know if you know th- this is a proper question for you or if, or if you would even know. But where does that stack up with other IG offices? Because uh, I'm just curious about the kind of referrals that you all get tend to be. Well, f- first off, you mentioned that HHS has so many programs that that means more people involved with those programs, which means more potentially criminal referrals. Is that the reason why you get such a large amount? Or is it just because of the the amount of money being spent, uh, you know, it's exactly what fraudsters are looking for? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and I'll tell you that I don't necessarily have statistics on all of the other OIGs, but what I can tell you about um, is is HHS and, and, you know, sort of why I think that we get that number of referrals. Mm-hmm. Number one, we are looking at externally based programs, right? Programs that serve almost every family uh, in the in the United States, right? Uh, we are providing um, healthcare services to the aged population, to the most vulnerable populations. Um, and so, you know, one adage of, of oversight and enforcement is follow the money. Where the money goes, that's where the fraudsters go. And so I think that the fact that we're talking about the vast amounts of money that are being spent in Medicare and Medicaid, um, you know, that is what drives those that, that number of referrals. Okay, and so when it comes to enforcement, let's I, I want to focus a little bit on the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services right now, just because that is, I imagine, one of the larger portions of where you see the most referrals too. Can you tell me about the actuary projections and you know how that helps guide the OIG work, but also um, the trends that you're seeing there when it comes to investigations? So, you know, the actuary projections certainly give us insights into the solvency of the program. And that is that is a primary concern. Right. But I think that there are really a lot of different factors that go, you know, really guide where we go with our work. And it's all about assessing risk. Right. And we talked a little bit about follow the money. So let's just talk a little bit about the money that's spent in these programs. Right. In 2021, HHS spent $521.8 billion in Medicaid dollars and $857.1 billion in Medicare dollars. Now, keeping in mind that more than 50% of those services are now provided through managed care, that's the place where we want to go look, right? Because that's where those big dollars are being spent. And if I'm being candid, I have to tell you, there's a layer between the federal government and those services that are being provided in managed care. And that's namely those insurance companies that are providing that, providing those policies of insurance and and standing between us and the providers. That makes it harder for us to oversee those programs, but that doesn't mean that we can't find a way. So let me give you an example. We've taken a look at the ways that these managed care plans can game the system using risk adjustment payments. Risk adjustment is a situation where plans can seek increased compensation for treating older, sicker beneficiaries. That increased payment is intended to discourage the plans from giving preferential enrollment to healthier individuals. And if it's applied correctly, it actually preserves and expands access to medically necessary health care. However, what our work has shown is that those financial incentives actually create risk by allowing the risk adjustment payment to drive upcoding of the severity of patient diagnoses. So we've seen an increase in the diagnosis. This patient is sicker, therefore we should get more work without proper documentation that there is, in fact, a need for a higher diagnosis and treatment that follows that. All right. And and so in knowing that information, is that going to be part of the increase in funds that you're asking for? You can further investigate those Medicare claims that, you know, something looks a little off here? Absolutely. And in doing that, you know, we're going to sort of take a two-pronged approach. Number one, we're going to work those referrals that we get. And number two, we're going to use the data to to identify those outliers and trends that point us to the providers, point us to the plans where we need to be, you know, focusing our resources. I didn't mention this earlier, and and I do want to to mention uh, this as well in terms of, you know, how do we focus our work on on Medicare and Medicaid? We, you know, we take a whole of OIG approach to, you know, deciding what kind of work we should do. Executives from each of our disciplines meet every week to discuss potential work products. So many of those, of course, are looking at CMS programs, but those executives assess the potential work 
and they make resource allocation decisions, which help us bring the most value and uh, will best improve HHS programs. So we're really taking, you know, not just an investigative lens, but a whole of OIG audit evaluation lens to how do we improve these programs. And that's important because, look, things like program changes and legislative changes, they also drive what we should be looking at. As an example, like the Inflation Reduction Act actually makes some pretty significant changes to the way that prescription drugs are going to be paid for by Medicare and what the cost-sharing Medicare enrollees will expect to pay for those drugs. So when we get legislative changes like that, we got to take a look at those. I, you know, we these are big policy changes, and you know, sometimes we often need to engage our audit and evaluation staff to to take a look at how best how best to implement those programs and how best to oversee those programs. Understood. And so, getting away from CMS, what are some of the other areas that you may not have mentioned yet that you are all trying to get a bigger hold of what is going on? Actually? Actually, in um, I imagine veterans benefits may be another place where you're seeing some overlap. And also Medicaid uh, is probably a big part of this with more states looking to accept more Medicaid dollars, actually. Yes, of course, Medicaid is very, very important. But I think to answer your question, I'm going to focus a little bit on the public health and human services side of HHS. The thing I think that beyond the Medicare and Medicaid programs, what we really need to focus on, grants and contracts. Mm -hmm. HHS is the largest grant-making entity in the federal government, and it oscillates between being the third or the fourth largest contracting entity in the federal government. So a tremendous amount of money is being distributed by HHS. In 2022, that's $740 billion in grants. That, of course, includes the Medicaid grants. And 38.9 billion in contracts. As we've talked about a couple of times already, you know, follow the money. The fraudsters certainly do. And so this is an area we think that is ripe for some expansion of our work. We have work in this area. In fact, we recently released a report looking at the National Institutes of Health and how they monitor and manage their grants. The report findings were consistent with our prior work. NIH struggles to effectively monitor grant awards and particularly struggles when there are foreign entities involved. So that report was looking at grant award that NIH made to EcoHealth Alliance, um, and then a subaward was made to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know, we certainly found some inappropriate expenditures, but I think the most important thing that we found here is that NIH did not effectively monitor the grant award. There were requirements for annual progress reports as a part of the grant, but EcoHealth was late with their year four progress report, and NIH failed to follow up on that for almost two years. That's important because NIH didn't uh, did re- when it did receive that report, it contained information that NIH believed would reveal circumstances that could have required the grant to be reviewed by a special HHS committee that was focused on potential pandemic pathogens. We have to get the basics right, right? Know who we're doing business with, issue the grants, and follow up. Similar on the contract side. And, you know, the other thing we're excited about in this area is that we believe that those advanced data analytics tools that we've been applying to Medicare and Medicaid oversight can actually enhance our review of grants and contracts as well. They can lead us to see the better see the risks, um, understand the trends and outliers on HHS contracts, and ultimately lead us to recover misspent funds and remove bad actors from the government grant and contract programs through suspension and debarment. So that would be my number one area, I think, you know, outside of Medicare and Medicaid that I, that we would like to be focused on. Yeah, when you're talking about this much data that needs analysis, are you going to be looking for any outside help, maybe contracting out to um, any vendors to help with that data analysis just because you're dealing with so many dollars and cents? Well, Eric, I, I think this is one of those situations where foresight and planning have, have really brought us to a great place. HHS OIG has one of the best data shops in the IG community. We had the uh, first chief data officer in the IG community, and we just have a tremendous staff of people that are not only building the infrastructure for us to be able to do this work, but conducting the analysis, working hand in hand with our auditors and with our investigators to identify trends to make referrals for, you know, additional um, analysis by those groups. So 
I think we're in great shape. That's not to say that we don't need more talent. We do. But uh, I think that we're going to focus a lot of our efforts with that staff and the contractors that they have. You know, we do certainly um, rely on some contract support there. But, yeah, I think we're in good shape. And also just lurking above this whole conversation was just the effect that the pandemic and COVID-19 pandemic had on, you know, NIH, HHS, all those agencies that were pretty much on the front line. Um, What can you tell me about what you saw? Are there any other major trends that you saw that were, you know, direct effects of what was going on in the world? Well, certainly there were a lot of effects and, you know, it is, I think, one of the great challenges that HHS uh, faces. If you go take a look, I'll invite you and your uh, listeners to go take a look at our top management challenges. One of the ones that we have up front is the response to emergencies. And of course, a pandemic falls into that into that rubric. Tremendous amounts of money came into the department and went out through things like the Provider Relief Fund. Again, as we've talked about, where where we have big uh, dollars flowing, there are opportunities for fraud. And so, you know, we've we've been trying to work with the department, you know, as they were setting up those programs to talk through things like how do we establish program integrity up front? Um, you know, again, that concept, know who you're doing business with. In any event, yes, I think there are just, uh, you know, tremendous impacts uh, within the department. It certainly was a a tremendous influx of resources and shift of resources in order to be able to respond to this pandemic. Mm -hmm. That certainly has impact. We have, I think my numbers may be a little dated here, but I think we have 100 products either ongoing or finished at this point looking at COVID-19. We have a COVID-19 landing page on our website. I invite you to go take a look at that to see more about what we've been doing overseeing HHS's response to the pandemic and how they can take lessons learned and, and move those forward for the future. And finishing up here, once again, not to compare you to other IG offices, but I'm just curious about HHS OIG's you know, footprint. I know that you have regional offices all over the country, but uh, you, know, <laughs> you mentioned how HHS is giving out more grants than anyone else in the federal government. Uh, you know, when you look at DOD has a whole headquarters for themselves in Virginia, you know, what does your office footprint look like um, as far as you know, even just office space and headquarters? Sure. Well, we certainly have our headquarters located here in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, because, of course, uh, CMS is, uh, has their headquarters in Baltimore. Uh, we have nine regional offices throughout the United States um, and then field offices within those divisions, because to your point, we have to cover a lot of ground <laughs> and we need folks to be on the ground, particularly um, our investigators and our auditors to be able to to go out and interview people, talk to them about what their experiences are, better understand the referrals that we get, better develop the facts for cases and for audits that we need. And so, yes, we do have a pretty large footprint across the nation. We are um, happy to be able to, to be close to the work and to be able to lay eyes on and put hands on the situations that we're investigating and auditing. And I hope I'm not bringing up a massive topic right at the end here, but, you know, you mentioned you have to cover a lot of areas. Covering rural areas and getting health care out to those areas is hard enough. Uh, I'm just curious about some of the challenges of finding fraud in some of those hard to reach places in the country. Well, you know, we have we are so fortunate to have a great staff and personnel. And I'm just I'm thinking through our staff that's out in the Midwest and West that are looking at Indian Health Service facilities and the, you know, the health care that is being provided to our American Indian and Alaska Native communities. And those folks are just truly experts. They've been on the job for a long time. They have developed a deep expertise in that area. They know the people. They know our law enforcement partners. And we are just so fortunate to be able to leverage that kind of expertise and that kind of commitment, you know, to be able to to identify fraud, waste and abuse in those programs, help the department make them better and just deliver better services to the entire American public. Julie Hodgkins, Principal Deputy Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. There's more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come, here's a civil service reform bill you'll want to pay attention to. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A bill from Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida would make federal executive branch employees at will. You could be fired for any reason short of a prohibited personnel practice. We get one interpretation of what this bill could mean from the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association's NARF's John Hatton. John, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And this bill has got a few co-sponsors, I think, already and also in the House. And what's your read on what it would actually do here? Well, I think you explained it pretty simply in terms of making everybody at will. That means people could be fired or hired for political purposes. This is uh, Schedule F on steroids. It would abolish the Merit System Protection Board, so you would have no administrative right to appeal an adverse action. There would still be potential remedies to go to court in very limited circumstances, similar to what may be available in the private sector. But this really eviscerates the merit-based civil service entirely, uh, and it doesn't really hide the fact that it's trying to do that. So everybody is Schedule F, in other words. <laughs> yeah, basically. And, and and Schedule F even envisioned perhaps agencies setting forth some rules. This doesn't even envision that. So there's even a provision that if you have a bad faith whistleblower claim, because you can still have some whistleblower protections, that you lose a portion of your pension. So it really discourages even those claims. And maybe if it's bad faith, sure, you should have some penalty. But if you're looking at a a claim that might be good faith and you're worried about being called bad faith and you're going to have a financial penalty for making it, then that's a problem too. So, Well, I guess, you know, one of the questions is who can decide whether someone comes or goes? Because if you have politicians deciding that, at the level of GS 14, 13, 12, whatever, even senior executive service, then you've got spoils system back as opposed to maybe just not a very good civil service system, but it's still (laughs) a civil service system. Right, exactly. And, you know, right now there's a limited amount of political appointees via Schedule C. It's about, I think, 4,000 or so that come in with each administration that are political. The logistics of hiring 2 million people very quickly based on political affiliation might be difficult. But I think over time you'd see people getting fired and hired and entirely new roles of people coming in based on are they supporting the president that's coming into power or not? And I think that's the most extreme danger of this. And even if it doesn't reach all 2 million employees, if it reaches 100,000 or 200,000, you still have a lot of worry about how the the service is operating and whether it's operating based on the rule of law or not or based on whoever is in charge. Right. If you look at some of the language at, you know, Rick Scott's Senate site, you know, it says it's clear that the bureaucracy of the federal government is both a waste of taxpayer dollars and inefficient. I guess that's until FEMA shows up in your disaster site and suddenly (laughs) you're glad they're there. But that's kind of a broad statement. I mean, yes, there are inefficiencies in the government and there are sclerotic issues with the bureaucracy. But this seems to blame it on the people that are in the same system that didn't create that system. Right. Obviously, any large bureaucracy is going to have some inefficiencies and complexities and certainly reasonable and legitimate to take a look at how do you make the government operate better, more efficient, making sure that people are really hired and fired based on merit. But that's, you know, within the merit system is saying, like, we should have a government that if we're hiring somebody to be a nuclear scientist, that they should have the skills to be a nuclear scientist and not be hiring somebody who's maybe has, you know, limited skills in nuclear science uh, because they are supportive of whoever is the president in power. So that's a very extreme example when we come to science, but you can think of, you know, legal examples or just other professional jobs within the federal government that you want somebody who knows what they're doing and you want there to be some institutional knowledge carried over from one administration to the next. And you want some protections on nepotism or on political favoritism in the hiring and firing of people. So it's a demagogic bill, in my opinion. Uh, It's worse that it's done in the middle of Public Service Recognition Week and being called the Public Service Reform Act. So a lot of issues with this bill, in my opinion. Yeah, we're speaking with John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And what do NARF members, what does the NARF kind of 
body politic think would be constructive ways to reform the civil service? Well, certain things that NARF as an organization has supported have been reforms to federal hiring practices, right? So right now, it takes a really long time to hire people into the federal government. Could you reform that system so we're not using these self-assessment questionnaires so somebody gets qualified into being in the role but is not really qualified for the role because they said they were, but they're really not? So that's the, you know, for example, the Chance to Compete Act. The administration has been moving towards using subject matter experts and hiring processes as well. You know, you could look at some more modest reforms to, you know, bring retirees back into the workforce by having dual compensation waivers. So your pay is an offset by your annuity when, you know, with certain safeguards. So people aren't, you know, planning to retire one day and go right to work the next day. Yeah, double two dipping. Sets of pay. <laughs> right. But, you know, when an agency really needs the extra help, you know, for example, the IRS may need extra help hiring a lot of people. And that's a specific skill set that's very unique to the IRS. And so how do you get the numbers of people that they need with those skills? You need to improve your hiring processes so it's more efficient. Uh, you need to be able to improve trainings. You need to be able to potentially hire back retirees. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of complexities in the way the civil service operates right now, where there's a lot of room for growth in that system and modernization of that system without you know throwing it out the door. Plus, there's also the idea of better training people that are designated as management, as career management, right. not just SES, but even managers below that, 15, 14, even some 13s have supervisory. And then if someone is a bad performer, then right. there are good procedures for getting rid of the people that need to go without that you know, bureaucratic process that you often hear used to describe trying to remove the people that aren't up to par. I think it's a little bit of a myth that you cannot fire federal employees. There may be procedures sure. you have to go through, but there's certainly, I've heard plenty of accounts of people firing federal employees. And so part of that, though, in cases where people aren't taking disciplinary action where they should, maybe it is a matter, a matter of training and a matter of knowing what the procedures are and knowing what you can do and having a performance management system in place that generally incentivizes managers to deal with poor performers rather than to accept them and going through. So therefore, you know, you have an incentive to deal with that rather than the disincentive of going through a more arduous process. That bill probably doesn't have a lot of chance of being enacted. It's a close Congress and it probably won't make anywhere in the House and the president would veto it in any case. And while we have you, let's talk about the debt limit, though. <laughs> that could be right. reached. It's kind of getting a little bit <laughs> hot under the collar around a lot of quarters with respect to that. And what would that mean, do you think, for even if it's a week of default or something for feds and retirees? Well, if the government doesn't have the authority to issue new debt to then pay financial obligations, when bills come due, like federal paychecks or like federal annuities, that means the federal employee or the federal annuitant won't get that money. And so, you know, the, the exact date that that will happen, you know, if it's default the first of the month and that's when checks are supposed to go out, well, that'll delay those checks until they're able to pay them. But it, it may not happen until the next month. So immediately it's, it's unclear. It's based on the timing that when the default X date is and the timing of payments. And then more broadly than how is it affecting directly federal employees and retirees, I think, are the economic impacts, the, the impacts on interest rates. You know, there's certainly plenty of economists with more uh, expertise in economics uh, that will give you numbers on the hits of GDP and the, the interest costs for the government and things like that. But I think it's certainly a situation that we should want to avoid <laughs> uh, in terms of disruptions of payments to the government so, and having that full faith and credit upheld. Sure. Pretty much everyone would be in the same suffering boat, whether you're a retiree <laughs> from the federal government or just on Social Security. Right. Social Security benefits could be affected as well. Medicare payments to providers that could affect your services. So there's a whole host of consequences that occur here. And I think right now there's negotiations, quote unquote, happening between the president and Congress, uh, really McCarthy. But it looks like they're still pretty far apart and it's getting closer to a deadline without an understanding of how they get past it. And so even if both sides say, oh, they don't want default, can you pass a clean debt limit extension through Congress or not? Like, how do you get that on the floor of the House or through the Senate? And so it's getting more worrisome. And so 
we sent a letter, or our national president sent a letter to Congress asking them to kind of avoid default here because it, it's, it is an extremely important issue. And, you know, we don't have a, a specific negotiated solution that we're pressing, but you shouldn't hold it hostage for your own priorities. And tell us about something totally unrelated. People can buy something now we hope they never need, and that is long-term care insurance program from John Hancock. Yeah, so the federal long-term care insurance program started in 2002 when the first policies were issued. And since then, you know, it is a very valuable insurance product. Long-term care costs are extremely high. A lot of federal retirees specifically may not be able to qualify eventually for Medicaid if they had some other policy, which is really the catastrophic coverage because you'll continue to have income. You're not going to be able to draw down your assets. So you need to figure out some way to plan for those costs in case you have them because they could be very high. I've heard costs as high as $15,000 a month for care coverage in a facility. So even if you want to plan and you'd rather not do that, you still need to plan for the worst. So a lot of federal retirees and federal employees planned responsibly by enrolling in this program to provide them insurance in the future. They thought they were signing up for a contract that was for their life, that the premiums were quoted as supposedly staying stable. But every time OPM has renewed a contract with John Hancock to insure the program, they have forced those premium increases onto enrollees. So they were as high as 25% in 2009, as high as 126%, and I believe 83% on average in 2016. And now the contract just got renewed May 1st of this year. New premiums would be effective January 24, and the amounts and different options for people will be available in September of 23. OPM has not provided information on the average or range of increases, which tells me it could be sure. very high. Right. This thing has been getting more expensive and more limited over the years, and almost no carriers deal in it anymore, correct? Correct. There's a lot of the carriers in the in the private sector, the non-group coverage market. So this is a specifically a group plan just for federal employees and retirees. You could go to the private sector and there's much more limited coverage for this type of insurance where it's just straight long-term care insurance because a lot of other programs have had a similar situation where premiums had to go up. They've had to go to their state insurance commissioners to get those premium increases approved. Here it's going to OPM. I think one of the differences in the federal program and some of these private market programs is that the insurer has basically taken on very little risk because they get a, the guaranteed percentage of profit from the program. And this was detailed in the report that OPM had commissioned in connection with this premium increase. And so the insurer here has not really been on the hook for any of the mistakes in their actuarial assumptions, and they're all being felt by the enrollees. And so that's the biggest difference between this program and the private sector programs, even if there have been similar premium increases. And the private sector has moved to maybe these hybrid long-term care life insurance models where you have like a long-term care insurance rider on a whole life insurance. So you could at least draw down from that first. And so there's been different products available than this current product is being done. Right. So think about it carefully if you decide to invest in it and, you know, look at your life and what you expect. Yeah. And well, I think right now enrollments in this program have been suspended. So they're not even issuing new policies. So it's just the people, there's about 270,000 people that are enrolled in this program that are just continuing to face these premium increases every seven years. And so it's a difficult situation because you're taking that choice away from the enrollees about what to do with their money and how to plan because they were quoted, let's say, $200 a month, and now it's going up to $800 a month. So, you know, as, as a potential example. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF. As always, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with more about that Rick Scott bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For the Defense Intelligence Agency, the move to the multi-cloud contract called C2E is all about data interoperability, sharing and disseminating data securely with other intelligence community partners, with other Defense Department agencies, and with foreign allies. For details, at the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference earlier this week, Federal News Network's Jason Miller and I caught up with the DIA Deputy Chief Information Officer, E.P. Matthew. We're working on something known as the Capability Delivery Pipeline. Right. As part of that capability delivery pipeline, you're looking to create a software factory on the, at the unclassified level. 
So when you create a software factory at the unclassified level, you don't need to get software developers that are TSSEI cleared, right? You can get them at a much cheaper. It makes you, it has the ability to acquire right, software engineers at a much cheaper and faster level. But in addition to that, once you build that pipeline, you're designing data standards, security standards from the very beginning. Typically, we are very application-centric, and so what ends up happening is when you decentralize the building of applications, sometimes security is an afterthought, right? So by doing this and creating these, this pipeline, all those standards are set up, up front and along with the ability to interoper- interoperate amongst multiple clouds. And you mentioned that the resulting applications, in fact, the developers might not know that they are working for the IC. That code can then be moved into the classified, and then yes. that's where the data would come from to actually run the app. Yes, so in an ideal situation, you, wanna, you will always need classified software developers, but ideally what you want to do is you want to build as much as possible in the unclassified environment, right, the capability itself, migrate that data, migrate that capability to the high side, where you can integrate it with the classified data, right? It, the ability to do that becomes, um, the ability to leverage this capability becomes very profound. We, so the application can check in, but it can't check out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, on the high side, right? You can check in on the, on the low side, right? You're, 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 right. You're, you're, you're building it on the low side, you're migrating it to the high side, right? And then, yes. A lot of software factories across the DoD, you get a software factory and you get a software factory. Now you get one. You're using, I imagine, the lessons learned from Air Force, Army, and the like. Yeah, and also our IC partners as well, right? What's going to be unique about our software factory is we're going to be the first 5i software factory. So our 5i partners will be able, to, will also be able to build and integrate into our system. And I think that's key because you do straddle the world of, of intelligence, obviously, and defense, which also leads us to the, we've got to ask about JWCC, the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability. Is that also on your agenda? I know you have C2E. Right, but but there's also JWCC, and right. we could we could continue along the the acronym soup. Yes, so we are working. We meet with our DISA CIO uh, on a biweekly basis, understanding those capabilities. Right, our goal is not to create anything new, but working with our IC partners and our DoD partners to leverage that capability on on the Nippernet and Cybernet side. And do you expect to use JWCC? I mean, it's it's not a no, we won't, or yes, we will, or where are you in that? Yeah, yeah. So. If the opportunity exists, we will always do that because we have a close partnership with DISA. We are actually looking to take over DISA's high side environment. So one of the things I, I did not mention in my is we're building something known as the company store. Right, the company store is the ability to access and buy TSSEI desktop services in a fee-for-service manner. So at the Pentagon, this in FY24, we'll take over 7,500 DISA users. That meaning DIA will be providing the desktop services for them. Likewise, one of the things that also we're looking to do in the future is can we adopt DISA services, meaning can DISA provide our desktop for the Nipper and Sipper, right? We believe we are the best on the TSSEI side, right? Why when you have three, when you maintain three environments, right, you kind of dilute your, your focus. DISA does Nipper and Sipper better than us. Why not adopt from them? And just to be put a finer point on this, the difference here is we have unclassified, classified, and then top secret. Correct. You guys are taking over the, sounds like the top secret, Yeah. but you're going to maybe look at DISA for the secret and, uh, and unclassified. Right, at the desktop level. Desktop right. level, yep. perfect. Talk about the providing about 7,500 of those desktops for top secret and above. How many are there roughly? Or I'm not sure you can answer that question if it gets too sensitive. Is no, no, no. It, oh. Yeah, so I, I think what most people don't realize about DIA CIO is DIA has roughly, at the unclassified numbers, you know, roughly 16,000 people. But we also provide the desktops at the TSSCI level for about another 50,000 or so, roughly 50,000 more. So we actually provide the desktop services for, you know, 65, other, yeah. 65, other and, other and parts we, of the IC. Other parts of the IC, right? Um, and so the, a lot of this is the smaller mom-and-pop type. Agencies could be big, but they have a small, they, they need a small footprint of a TSSCI, right? So it's a lot easier for them to come to us, use our company storefront model, adopt it as a fee-for-service. So 7,500 to start, more coming, yeah, as 70, you said. Right, right, 7,500. That's just the, the Pentagon. These right. are people in the Pentagon that use DISA, and DISA is looking to adopt this. All right, and in the JWIX network, you talked about both changing out the hardware, modernizing because you have old switches and routers, et cetera, but also updating the architecture. Yeah. And so can you do the architecture and the hardware simultaneously, or how does that work? We have three levels of effort. So number one is... 
tech refresh, right? Because again, identifying areas of greatest risk uh, and vulnerabilities Just to is keep it running, to keep it running, right? To keep that running, right? So we'll modernize that. But as we do that modernization of that, what we're looking also looking to do then is then modernize the architecture. So right now our architecture is about 30 years old. So how do we now modernize it, knowing the risk of foreign adversaries, right? How do we modernize and design with failure? How do we design with resiliency and redundancy with so the intent? You, so your architecture would be hardware independent, so to speak? It could be. It could be hardware independent, interoperable, right? Um, yes. Uh, and, and what you'll see in the industry is they're moving to a more software-defined networks. That's, right. the, that's the trend of the industry. And then there's a zero trust element. In all Absolutely. And zero trust is part of that new architecture that we have actually factored and, and is funded for. What's the kind of rollout of that uh, modernization effort? Uh, obviously, JWix has been in the news a little bit late, lately. Right. I, I imagine a lot of what you've been doing has nothing to do with the recent news and the insider challenges. It's really been something that's been ongoing, yeah. the modernization effort. Can I, if I, I know this is not a question you asked, but can I explain that a little bit? Because you you we, should, you because, should. Because, because, we get, yeah, because we get a lot of RFIs, right? Like we get a lot of requests for information and questions on that, about this. So JWix is the wide area network. And off that wide area network, or think of it as the beltway, like 495, off that 495 beltway, you have a lot of off-ramps that lead to local lanes. So one of the off-ramp would be NGA, one of them would be NSA, one of them would be CIA, right? And one of them would be Air Force, right? And so with regards, I think where you're pointing to is with regards to the unauthorized disclosures, Correct. it would be Air Force that would be responsible for the maintenance and the security components of that local area network, of that local area highway. We are responsible for the wide area network, right? So the example I like to use is, let's say if your Netflix is down, you wouldn't call Verizon and say, hey, why is my Netflix down? Even though you may be accessing Netflix via Verizon. If you can access Gmail, which is a cloud-based email system, if you can access Gmail, you can access other things via your wide area. If you can access YouTube, right? But if you can access Netflix, you wouldn't call Verizon and say, hey, why is Netflix down? We would call Netflix, right? So if there's an unauthorized disclosure on Netflix, even though Verizon is the, the, the superhighway that provides that, Netflix would be responsible for that particular piece. So, yeah, so we're responsible for the, the larger eight-lane highway. It's the off-ramps of those each agency. They are responsible for their local area network and the things that happen inside that local area network. E.P. Matthew, Defense Intelligence Agency's Deputy Chief Information Officer, speaking with me and Executive Editor Jason Miller at the ACT-IAC Emerging Tech Conference this week. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 